welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 13, The Holiness of Israel's God. Good evening, everybody. Uh, tonight is the 13th lecture. Um, kind of a watershed moment where we're going to reiterate some of the things we've discussed in the past in the previous lectures, and centering this time around the holiness of Israel's God and the importance of that idea. The last three lectures will be on the evil spirits and their activities in the world and among us, and followed by the angels of God and their activities and their roles, and the last one will be on the attributes, other attributes of Israel's God, the many attributes of Israel's God that we seek to emulate. So we'll start off with the holiness of God today, and this is from Jesus' prayer over his disciples from John 17, basically his final prayer when he was pulling so many things together also. And we see from here that sanctification comes through the truth of God, and without truth there is no sanctification. He's praying earnestly to his Father in heaven that they might be one with him and he's one with the Father, that all might be one. There is he gives a definition of what oneness means. The oneness of God is oneness grounded in the truth and grounded in unity of purpose and commitment and consecration and so forth. Uh, the Jews say that God is one. Their main mantra is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is the Lord is one, Jehovah is one, in the, giving the idea of a single, you know, monotheistic God. But here, in Jesus' prayer, we have an example of oneness that is more comprehensive and shows how those who emulate him can become one with God and become one with the gods, so to speak. He says, sanctify them through your truth. And the sanctification is really key to the whole coming of the second coming of the Lord so that we might be able to live in his presence. Because if we are not holy and he is holy, we cannot abide his presence. We have to go somewhere else. So it's a, it's a really essential idea that we become sanctified. Through your truth, for your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. And this is a loaded scripture. He's sanctifying himself also. He's not just asking us to sanctify ourselves or the apostles. Through applying the truths of God in their lives and living them, through assimilating them, through learning them, through emulating them, through acquiring them, through eating them, through digesting them, to, so that they themselves are the truth. As Jesus says of himself, I am the truth, the way, and the life. He personifies the truth. And as much as the truth is in us, we can also personify the truth and the light of God. Now he sanctifies himself for their sakes. And of course, that has meaning on different spiritual levels. In his case, he sanctifies himself through the atonement that he wrought for the sins of the world. And we also sanctify ourselves by the things that we bear as we emulate him and suffer through things that sanctify us, as we'll see in these scriptures, many of which we already quoted, but this is in the sense of becoming sanctified today. From Visions of Glory, 
It was then that I began to realize how far we as mortals have fallen. That is, in the fall, having acquired bodies and living now in mortality in a celestial world, how far we have fallen, our forgetfulness, compounding our fallen state and our ignorance. He says, I learned that we were very different from how we were before the fall. Looking down on my body, which was now dead, I knew everything about it, how much time it needed, how much growth and exposure to truth it needed in order to be finished or completed. Just as a baby grows and all the cells have to be in place, so to speak, so also the spiritual journey has to be completed and rounded out. And it's, a, it's an entire process to be able to receive all that Father had prepared for it to receive. That was very clear to me. I understood all the changes my body needed to experience to, come, to become fit to return to the presence of the Father for it almost seemed impossible to accomplish everything in the short duration of mortality. And of course, he, he did see that he, he did accomplish it, and in his book, he explains how, how much it took and what it took and how long it took and the things he had to endure and his ministry to many others that are part of his sanctifying process. In another place, he says, when I returned to my body instead of dying and resumed my life, it was very hard to reconcile my former beliefs with all that I had seen in vision because the former beliefs were not grounded in the truth. So now we had to switch over to seeing things how they really were, which his visionary experiences gave him, but it was still a big switch for him in his body now to disabuse his mind of all the previous things that he was in the habit of seeing and believing and now to adjust, to make an adjustment to create this new paradigm grounded in the truth. I was in the habit of thinking and believing very powerfully one way. Yet I spiritually knew a greater truth, one that my emotions had a very difficult time yielding to, like a snowflake that remains on a leaf all summer, refusing to yield to the warmth of the sun. I can't even say today that I'm done with that work. I was shown how spiritual gifts work. There are good gifts and are evil gifts. We choose good when we obey the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads us into all truth, as we know from the Scriptures. The Spirit testifies of the truth, and it cannot testify of untruths. These are gifts of love, joy, peace, faith, healing, prophecy, and many other gifts. When we repeatedly choose obedience to what is good, we create a spiritual link with Jesus Christ, and then we align ourselves for the truth, for gaining the truth. Because remember, with the doing comes the hearing and understanding, as we discussed in a previous lecture. He changes us into his spiritual likeness. And we grow brighter and brighter in this process, that is, acquiring more truth and light, until we become children of light and we receive our wages from the Savior. We choose evil gifts by obeying the temptations of evil spirits, which is the same thing as saying to yield to a temptation from Satan. We choose evil gifts by obeying a lust to obtain some physical thrill or high. When we give in to any amount of evil, we are creating a spiritual link like coupling of train cars together, and when we allow this to happen over and over, we are changed, darkened, dragged down, until we become the servants of darkness, and we receive our wages from the master of darkness. Well, of course, these are the two extremes, but what about everything else in between where you just do nothing? Like Johnny do nothing, you know, and what happens to him? Well, time moves forward, and so progressively, if he's not doing anything more than what he normally does, then he's actually regressing, going backwards. 
and eventually he'll end in that place mentioned here. Because disdaining the good gift is like choosing the bad gift, the evil gift. Second Nephi, 28. This is probably about the third time we have quoted this, but it is so key to our present situation, I believe, in the church and in the world in general. Woe be unto him that hearkeneth to the precepts of men, or the commandments of men, or the ideas of men, the popular theories that are out there, and denieth the power of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because these two things are in parallel, the gift of the Holy Ghost is contingent on, or receiving the power of God is contingent on the gift of the Holy Ghost, and vice versa. The Holy Ghost bears testimony of the truth. Yea, woe be unto him that saith, We have received, we need no more. What Joseph Smith calls putting up fences and say, I'll go so far, no further. I'm happy with the way I am, and I don't want this other, you know, it's too much for me. It's, it's more than I can deal with. I have to change, and I'd rather mock those things or, you know, consider them fringy and, and so that I can justify myself and feel good about where I'm at which is what people do, as, as we see here. And I find, warn to all those who tremble are angry because of the truth of God. Well, do you think they're angry just inside themselves? No, they're going to express their anger. Be angry at somebody. Because that's the next step when you start rejecting the truth. For behold, he that is built upon the rock, which is Christ, or the truth, receiveth it with gladness, and he that is built upon a sandy foundation like unto the devil, trembleth lest he shall fall. And of course, he will fall. He knows he's going to fall. His spirit knows it. But he tries to rationalize his way out of it. Woe be unto him, or a curse, that shall say, we have received the word of God. Yeah, Isaiah starts off chapter 1, talking to people who are living the word of God, but not on the degree that the Lord is requiring of them. So yes, they have received the word of God. But they've also received precepts of men, which they are continuing to ignore. And we need no more of the word of God, especially if the truth hits home, like it did to the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' time. And they were cut to the quick, remember? And they got angry at Jesus and sought to kill him and so forth. And they tried to kill the apostles and did. For we have enough. Oh, that is a hard situation to be in. I, we have enough? I mean, there's no end to the truth of God, so, and God never stops speaking. So to say that is really to kind of consign yourself to a lesser kingdom. Now, the servant's role in Isaiah is to restore the truth and to deal with all of these untruths and popular ideas and precepts of men. They're mentioned in chapter 29 of Isaiah. That's where the Book of Mormon, that's where Nephi gets the idea from. And the servant comes in response to that. My servant whom I sustain, whom the Lord sustains, my chosen one in whom I delight, him I have endowed with my spirit. Well, we have to draw some contrast here because he's calling the servant in whom he delights and sustains because it's, the implication is that he's not delighting and not sustaining those who are running the show. Him I have endowed with my spirit. He will dispense justice to the nations, to the Gentiles, it says. He will not shout or raise his voice to make himself heard in public. Even a bruised reed he will not break, a dim wick he will not snuff out. He will perform the work of justice in the cause of truth, while others are performing works not in the cause of truth. 
and not seeing justice at the fruits of their labors. He's like Moses because the bruised reed and dim wick is an allusion to Moses because his eye was not dimmed and uh, so forth. And right until he was, you know, ended his mission on a translated level. From 3 Nephi 21, where Jesus is speaking of his servant, tying the two scriptures together, one from Isaiah 52, where the servant is marred, and the other from Isaiah 57, where the, he heals the servant. And we see that the life, or that the mission of the servant is to restore the truth by bringing forth the words of Christ to us, to the Gentiles. Why? Because they're necessary to restore the truth. It's part of his mission. Behold, the life of my servant shall be in my hand, therefore they shall not hurt him, although he shall be marred because of them. Well, there you see that there was opposition to his ministry. By whom? Well, by the authorities of the day, of course, as there was against David in his day, or Christ in his day, or Joseph Smith in his day, and he fits this same messianic pattern, or Moses, or any of the other prophets, to the point that he's marred beyond recognition, Isaiah 52. Yet I will heal him, for I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. Because the devil is behind the marring of the servant and egging on those who are angry because of the truth. Therefore shall come to pass that whosoever will not believe in my words, who am Jesus Christ, which the Father shall cause him to bring forth unto the Gentiles, that's to us, because we are identified as Ephraimites that have come through the lineage of the Gentiles, as Jacob, you know, declared when he laid his right hand on Ephraim's head and said that his offspring in the end time would become the fullness of the Gentiles. In the temp temple Kirtland dedicatory prayer, in the, um, uh, we who are identified with the Gentiles, one of the phrases Joseph Smith used, and in the Book of Mormon, the gospel is clearly restored to the Gentiles when the Gentiles goes to the house of Israel, which it defines as, as the ten tribes, the Jews, and the Lamanites of today, or the Nephites. And shall give unto him power that he shall bring forth un them forth unto the Gentiles. To us it shall be done even as Moses said. So he's one like unto Moses. Two, besides Christ, they shall be cut off among my people who are of the covenant. People who are of the covenant are us, Gentiles of the house of Ephraim. So all of this is kind of a, a coming together of a lot of things in the end time that are very decisive for us today. It's a turning point when those who accept the words of Christ that the servant brings forth become saviors of the house of Israel, see their mission clearly, after having gone through the opposition that they are going to receive, while the Gentiles, who by and large reject the gospel, or the, the restored gospel, that is now being restored in a greater sense, will then be cut off among the people. Because the words of Christ are on the large place of Nephi, which we haven't received yet. And they contain more truth than we currently have in the Book of Mormon. So you can't deny these things. You can talk your way out of them, but figure it out. Figure it out from the scriptures yourselves. These are hard truths to take for some who are not ready to accept the truth. Isaiah 29, which talks about the precepts of men and the opposition from the wise and the learned, who are the principal advocates and proponents of the precepts of men. They publish them in their books and their articles through which they gain tenure and university callings. And as a result, people are left with half-truths and perverted truths. But 
when the servant brings forth the words of Christ, other books come forth, like the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, other books that have been sealed up to, to come forth in their purity in the end time, and the Book of Isaiah, which has been a sealed book. In that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind see out of gross darkness. The lowly shall obtain increase of joy in Jehovah, and the poorest of men rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel, because it is through His holiness, as He says, that He, he acts and performs His roles. It is through His motivation and through His desire to communicate that holiness and to, his, to God's children and bring them up to that level of holiness. So you see the Holy One of Israel mentioned these kind of contexts. For tyrants shall come to naught, and scorners cease, and all who watch for iniquity shall be cut off. Which tells you that through the word cut off, again, wherever you see the words cut off, it's, same, it's always the same group of people. But by this time, they're watching for iniquity. They're watching for what they can find against others to, to accuse them of. You can see they've already joined the other side, because that's what Satan does. Those who had a word judge a man to be guilty without checking to see if it's true or not, who ensnared the defender at court, who for nothing turned away him who was in the right, or for a bribe. And where does this happen? Well, in the courts, of course. Limited to political courts? Well, of course not. Also religious courts. Therefore thus says Jehovah, who redeemed Abraham to the house of Jacob. No longer shall Jacob be dismayed, his fail shall pale no more. For when he sees among him his children the work of my hands, hallowing my name, devoted to the Holy One of Jacob, reverencing the God of Israel, then will the erring in spirit gain understanding, and they who murmured accept instruction. So who are these people? Well, he calls them Jacob. So they're of the Jacob-Israel category, so those who are not members of the church, who, who are converted at some point, such as the Jews, such as the ten tribes, and the remnants of the Nephites and Lamanites of today and others, many others. From visions of glory, becoming sanctified through Jesus Christ. He said, It was stunning to realize that life is so much more complex than we can imagine or envision while in this mortal body. Now, and people who are so inured to watching television and all the, the kind of things that put people to sleep in this world, well, of course, to them, these things are very complex, and why would they want to move out of their you know, couch potato situation? Why, why not just stay where you are? And just, like my sister in New Zealand just emailed me and said, I'm not into that. You know, I'm happy with a simple life and just walking along the beach, being happy with my family. And, and my sister is a great person. Don't get me wrong. My, all my siblings are hard workers, the salt of their people. But yeah, it's way more complex than they can imagine or envision. They're not members of the church. Why would they want to change if they're happy or think they're happy? So I said, to, I emailed her back and said, well, you know, I guess I take the broader view, you know, there's, I see more to life, I look into the past, present, and future, and, you know, the lives of people and individuals and nations it's always been my interest from the beginning, as long as I can remember. So why, you know, this is where I'm happy. I'm dealing with those kind of things. 
She says, God has provided a very complex and inspired system to exalt us. Well, I would rate it as the, you know, five star, 100%. You couldn't do better. His system is so amazing. It continues to amaze us as we progress in the gospel, doesn't it not? A big part of it is to give us the opportunity to be in a body, a body that desires almost everything contrary to God's plan. Jesus Christ exposes us via the Holy Spirit to all that is true, speaking to our spirit every time we must choose between good and evil. Then, when we sin, our Savior has atoned for our sins, and we repent and obey His laws. Well, yes, but we also set ourselves back. Don't forget that. Because I was raised in the Catholic Church, and you can say, well, just confess your sins to the priest, it's all forgiven, and it's just like it was before. So some people, you know, say to themselves, well, then I can sin a little bit, confess it to the priest, and I'm okay. And there are some scriptures that talk about that, correct? But sinning really does put us back. We can never be, if we not sin, we can never be there again unless we double and triple our efforts. And who did that after sinning greatly? Remember? Sons of Messiah, Alma, yeah. And they, no doubt, attained their setbacks. They, they, they overcame, I would say. All of this process is designed by God to bring our spirit with our body into compliance with the laws of God and return body and soul inseparably connected back to the presence of God to be judged and to report back. So now, with our bodies sanctified, we return into God's presence. Because the spirits, our spirits were holy. It's our bodies that need to become sanctified. DNC 20. We know that all must, men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and worship the Father in his name. We know we have heard that so many times, but to believe in Jesus Christ is more than just being a member of the church. Because belief in Jesus Christ and exercising faith in him is ongoing and it can increase to the point where you're literally brought into the presence of Christ and can worship the Father in his name and endure faith on his name to the end or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. Yes, while you know, salvation is one, one level, and we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. Yes, that gets you into the saved state or a terrestrial glory. Or you are redeemed from the fall, you no longer have sin, you obtain and retain a remission of your sins, but you're not yet perfect, perfected in this image and likeness or sanctified to the degree that you qualify for a celestial glory. And so he says, and we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. To all those who love and serve God with all their mights, minds, and strength, because that is what gets you sanctification and elect status. Moroni 10. His parting words. Come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. Well, what ungodliness? I mean, if we were to sit down and make a list of all the ungodliness things, all the ungodly things in this world and around us in our culture, the list, the list would be endless. Uh, many things that we just excuse ourselves, that other members of the church are doing, so we think, oh, they must be okay. But have you ever tried it? And because to deny yourselves of all ungodliness is to be godly. And where does that get you? 
That gets you to be perfected in Christ and into his presence. And if you deny yourselves of all ungodliness, let's say 99.9% .9 of everything that's out there, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, because that's what it's going to take, then is his grace sufficient for you, He's implying that only then, that by his grace you may be perfect in Christ. Well, I'll never be perfect. How often do you hear people say that? But he's saying, yes, you can. And it's a commandment. And where there's a commandment, the Lord prepares the way. And if, by the way, you've heard of just man made perfect, so that's on a celestial level, on an elect level. And if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God, because the power of God will be in you. And we ever know the power of God is in you. And you'll know it, and you'll use the power of God for good. And again, if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, which you can then also do, even after you have it, and then are you sanctified, then are you sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ which is in the covenant of the Father, unto the remission of your sins, that you become holy without spot. Holy without spot. Cleansed of all your iniquities, all your generational stuff, not just forgiven of your sins. So you see what a process this is? My goodness. It's a whole process. And if we're not in the midst of this journey, of this process, let's get on our knees and implore God, because... It's going to take everything that you have and all his grace to, for you to get there. And that is what Spencer sees. And that is why it, he's so afraid at first that he won't get there. And here is some of what it takes to get there. Helaman, we've quoted this before, but I'll do it again. In the 51st year of the reign of the judges, there was peace also, save it with the pride which began to in, enter into the church. Well, <laughs> take our church today as an example. Because Helaman is certainly a, a type of our day. Not into the church of God, at least those who would be recognized by the Lord as the church of God. But into the hearts of the people who profess to belong to the church of God. And they were lifted up in pride even to the persecution of many of their brethren. Well, we haven't seen really active persecution in the church to a great extent. We have seen it. But it's more kind of a passive persecution you know, the difference between wealthy people and poor people and so forth, and the credence and almost adulation and respect people who are wealthy get, while those who are of low estate kind of get shoved aside and looked down upon. How often do you, do you just see people and, and judge them? I mean, I find myself tempted to judge people all the time. It's a constant temptation that I have to fight against. Lifted up in pride, even to the persecution of many brethren. Because sometimes you can see people on the sinful level that they are, that have no light in them, and you want to judge them and not see them in, in the way God sees them, as a child of God, and the potential that they have, and what they could rise up to be and become. But we know from this being a type that the persecution is going to become, come among us. If the servant is going to get marred, and certainly all those who are laboring with them are going to get marred, or something equivalent. Now this was the great evil which did cause the more humble part of the people to suffer great persecution and to wade through much affliction. 
Nevertheless, they did fast and pray often, and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility, and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ. Because they had to do that, otherwise they'd capitulate to it and themselves become persecutors. They had to turn more and more to God for strength, for power to resist the temptation to lash back or something, or to speak evil or something. And to the filling of their souls with joy and consolation, because that comes next. You wade through the afflictions, and the Lord heals you and blesses you to where you're using these situations, these circumstances that you don't like, as stepping tones to perfection and sanctification, and with the subsequent joy and consolation, even to the purifying and sanctification of their hearts, which sanctification cometh because of their yielding to hearts, yielding their hearts unto God, in those situations, in those very situations of adversity and pain and suffering and afflictions. Same here, Ether 4, which we discussed before. In that day shall, that they shall exercise faith in me, says Jehovah, even as the brother of Jared did, that they may become sanctified in me. You know, from this whole process of purification and sanctification, you must know that the brother of Jared went through horrible stuff to get to this point that he was in. It doesn't work any other way. Enoch did, everybody did. So these words are loaded. We don't know the brother of Jared's backstory, but we do know that he was in the image of Christ, that he attained. And who attains that image except they go through that process? Then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw, that is, when he was sanctified as he was, even to unfolding them of all my revelations to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of the heavens and of the earth, and all things that in them are. He's the one that backs this up. It's his word that we will be privy to all these secrets. Second Nephi 9. Behold the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel, now again, we have to qualify the word saints because saints are truly these sanctified people on a celestial level. That's what the scriptural definition of saints is. Celestial category. Calling like she made sure, just men made perfect. Not anybody below that. If it's anybody below, then they're not yet sanctified by the scriptural definition of the term. They who have believed in the Holy One of Israel, they who have endured the crosses of the world, there it is, and despise the shame of it, they shall inherit the kingdom of God which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and their joy shall be forever, full forever. Well, go through the scriptures and see who else inherits the kingdom of God on the earth, and you'll see it's this celestial category. Oh, the greatness and the mercy of our God, because it's only through his mercy that we get there, the Holy One of Israel, because of his holiness, he's merciful. Because of his holiness, he's also just. For he delivers his saints from that awful monster, the devil, and death, and hell, and that lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. Yes, and not only that, he enthrones them. Oh, how great the holiness of our God, for he knoweth all things. For there is not anything save he knows it, and he cometh into the world that he may save all men, if they will hearken to his voice. Behold, he suffered the pains of all men, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children, who belong to the family of Adam. Who belong to the family of Adam? You mean there is other species out there? It implies something. 
Are there humanoids in others? And if there are, who are they? And does he redeem them? Actually, no, he doesn't redeem them, but they're out there. Isaiah says it. He talks about the, the hosts of heaven who also go to the prison. Who are they? Well, they're coming from somewhere, but not from this earth. And he suffers this, that the resurrection might pass upon all men, that all might stand before him at, at the great and judgment day. Yes, but you have to qualify that by those who will not bend the knee to him or accept him as their savior, namely perdition types, as we saw in section 76, that they're not resurrected, because he's not their proxy. When they don't bow the knee, he's no longer their proxy. He has no obligation to them. So whenever it says all and every, you have to qualify it in the context in the light of other scriptures. You can't just blanket say, well, it's everything. It never or hardly ever is. And he commandeth all men that they must repent to be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. Perfect faith. How hard is that to acquire? Because in the vicissitudes of life, when you're going through it, in all kinds of situations, maintaining that perfect faith is extremely difficult. You know that it is. Or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And if they will not repent to believe in his name and be baptized in his name and endure to the end, they must be damned. For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has spoken it. He has spoken it by his holiness. And here is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw my Lord seated on a throne, highly exalted, the skirt of his robe filling the sanctuary. Now, several things here because he also enthrones his people. His, he enthrones his people who attain an elect level. And he also highly exalts them. When you take the word exalted, you'll see that he exalts others. All through the scriptures he talks about that. So he wants them to become as he is, in other words. The skirt of his robe filling the sanctuary. So there was a connection between where he was and the temple here on the earth where Isaiah saw him. He created this link or an opening between the two. The sanctuary because it was the Holy of Holies. And that's where Isaiah saw him. Seraphs stood by him overhead, each having six wings. Seraphs because they are holy angels. Having six wings or veils, with two they could veil their presence, likely energy fields. With two conceal their location and with two fly about. They called out to one another and said, Most holy is Jehovah of hosts. The consummation of all the earth is his glory. Now the Hebrew is literally holy, 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 as the King James translates it. And you could say, well, you could surmise, let's say people on an elect level, they're holy. Yes, they are. They're called holy by scriptural definition because they've sanctified their lives to that point. And you could say that if Christ is three times holy or thrice holy, or most holy, which is the Hebrew superlative. The Hebrew doesn't have a, a different superlative. Then you could say, well, what about people on an, a translated level? Then they would be holy and holy, holy and more holy. So you have holy, holy and holy, and then three times holy. Does that make sense? And so you have different degrees of holiness, which makes total sense, of course. The consummation of all the earth is his glory. I think the King James translates it fullness. 
of the earth? Because that is his goal. That's his ministry. To bring, to create an earth, to create a place for the children of God to work out their salvation and exaltation. Bringing that to a consummation, as he calls himself, the first who started it and the last who ends it, that is his glory. That glorifies him because they are glorified and so in their glorified state, he is sanctified and, and glorified. 48, Isaiah. Thus is Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. I, Jehovah, instruct you to your good, guiding you in the way you should go. Well, again, in the truths of God, through which we attain sanctification. Had you but obeyed my commandments, which are the terms of the covenant, which are grounded in the truth of God, your peace would have been as a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been as the sands in number, your descendants as many as their grains. Their names would not have been cut off and obliterated from my presence. There again, the word cut off. Who is he talking to? He's talking to God's people, God's covenant people, in the end time as well as in his day. And we are it. You mean to say we're going to have these horrible things happen to us? You're just kidding, right? No, the scriptures say it. You know, why don't you become acquainted with the scriptures? They're talking about you. So let's take a serious look at it. And don't imagine things like, oh, that could never happen to us. Because yes, it can. And it usually happens to the very people who think that, does it not? As a blazing fire consumes stubble and as dry weeds wane before the flame, so shall their roots decay away and their blossoms fly up like dust. Now to be reduced to dust is to be reduced to a chaotic state or non-entity. For they have despised the law of Jehovah of hosts and reviled the words of the Holy One of Israel. The words of the Holy One of Israel. The words which are holy, they are sacred truths to apply to our lives, all of which to apply in our lives for our profit and learning, and not just to cherry-pick them and apply the good to ourselves and the bad to someone else, which is such a human thing to do, is it not? Isaiah 30. They are, or we are, we might say, a rebellious people, sons who break faith. And how many are leaving the church today or breaking faith with the church and the gospel, who instead of going deeper into the gospel, searching the scriptures, learning what the fullness of the gospel is all about, which they haven't, because if they had, they would not be doing that. Children unwilling to obey the law of Jehovah. Not just the easy commandments, but the difficult ones. Who say to the seers, see not. Well, of course, when they're at low state, spiritual state, of course they're going to say that when they meet the truth from people like Spencer and others who are having visions and dreams. We say to the seers, see not. Those with visions predict not what is right for us. Flatter us, foresee a farce. You know, just tell us fraudulent stuff and we'll believe it. And, but don't tell us the truth because it hurts. It means I have to change. Get out of the way, move aside, off the path. I mean, what kind of language is that? That's what they're going to, that's the mindset of people who are angry against the truth of God and takes it, take it out on those who believe the truths of God. 
they're always the, the victims of of the of the uh, the wicked, those whom Satan inspires. See, he's confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Because the Holy One of Israel is the one who gives these truths, who gives these visions. He's giving it to people today as he did in Old Testament times, as he did in New Testament times. There are those among us who are purified and sanctified sufficiently that they're having these visions. And we should be rejoicing in that, and not giving those people a hard time. We should be glad and say, Really, it's happening to us today as in ancient times. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Maybe we could have those. And why aren't we? Therefore, thus is the Holy One of Israel. Because they're poo-pooing him, so now he's going to tell them his mind. Because you have rejected this word and rely on manipulation and double-dealing, well, I never do that. I have a temple recommend. Well, yeah, but... What about your business dealings? You know, what have you done that you haven't confessed and so forth? Because it might shame you or embarrass you and so forth. There are many who hold temple recommends, I assure you, who are dishonest in their business dealings. We hear about it all the time. They're in the stake presidents. They're in the bishopric. They're counselors, what have, what have you. People who are doing wrong, wrongful dealings. Because you have rejected this word and rely on manipulation and double dealing, and on them are dependent, this iniquity will be to you as a perilous breach exposed in a high wall, which suddenly and unexpectedly collapses. Well, likely if you're you know, investing in Wall Street and Wall Street collapses, fine, what will you have left? You know, your means that you could have consecrated to the Lord for a righteous purpose, where is it gone now? Down the tubes. It shall shatter with a crash. I mean, does this sound like Wall Street or what? Like an earthenware vessel ruthlessly smashed, among whose fragments shall not be found a shard with which to scoop lit embers from a fireplace or dip water from a tank. So all these investments are nothing, worth nothing anymore. Or whatever, you know, whatever you want to put on this, but the wall, the high wall, the crash, I mean, what about this terminology? Doesn't it remind you of something? Based on manipulation and double dealing and on them are dependent, for thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, by a calm response, triumph with quiet confidence gained the victory, but you would have none of it. Why? Because you're already relying on the arm of flesh, and when these things start happening, what are you going to keep doing? Relying on the arm of flesh, of course. For you thought, not so, we will flee on horses, or cars, or trucks, or whatever you want today. Therefore shall you flee indeed. We will ride on swift mounts, therefore shall your pursuers be swifter. You will flee by the thousands of the threat of one. Can you see the freeways clogged with all these motorhomes and places of, you know, nowhere to go. They ran out of gas. That's it. You have to abandon them now. By thousands of the threat of five, to your left is a flagstaff on a mountaintop, an ensign on a hill. Yes, only a few of you will be left. Who? Well, the elect, of course. Because the mountaintop is where the remnant of the Lord will be protected. An ensign on a hill. Because the ensign is that servant who is their proxy savior. 27, 11. They are not a discerning people. Why, how can they be if they're into worldly cultures? How can they be discerning spiritually? 
Therefore, the Omaker shows them no mercy. And if there's no mercy, then what? Well, pure justice, of course. Pure justice means all the curses of the covenant. Be cut off from his people and so forth. He who formed you, formed them, favors them not. He created you, but you disqualified yourself from his blessings. Isaiah 17. In that day, Jacob's glory shall wane, and his fatness of body become leanness, which is a covenant curse. After being like a harvest of ripe grain, which is covenant blessing, whose ears are reaped by the armful, you will become like ears plucked in the valley of Rephaim, or the valley of ghosts, when only the gleanings are left, as, it were, as they were for poor people, the very poor people whom you neglected. Or when an olive tree is beaten, having two or three berries in the topmost bough, or five or four or five in its most fruitful branch, said Jehovah, the God of Israel. Because what will you do when the droughts come? What are you going to do then if there's going to be no rain? What about the seven years of, of, of drought that have been predicted? What about what happened in Egypt? Isn't that some kind of type and shadow? President Hinckley reminded us of that. And that day, men will have regard to their maker and their eyes look to the Holy One of Israel. Why, of course, because who else can they turn to now? And regard not the altars, the works of their hands, nor look to things their fingers have made, the idols of prosperity and the shining images, their whole idolatrous materialistic culture that they were so into that brought about this situation of covenant curse. In that day, their mighty city shall be like the deserted towns of the Hivites and Amorites, or the Canaanites, which they abandoned before the Israelites during the desolation. When the Israelites invaded the promised land and desolated it, now it's their turn to be desolated. Isaiah 5. Therefore are my people exiled without knowing why, or without knowledge, or without understanding, or without knowing the Lord. Knowledge is a, is a loaded term in Hebrew theology. It means knowing God face to face or personally. Their best men die of famine, their masses perish with thirst. In other words, almost everybody. Sheol becomes ravenous, opening its mouth insatiably. Into it descend their elite with the masses, their boisterous ones and revelers. My people, his covenant people. Oh, well, that could never happen to us. While the Jaredites were his people at one time, so were the Nephites, and it happened to them. And you say it can't happen to you? And what proof do you have of that? Mankind or humanity is brought low when men debase themselves, causing the eyes of the high-minded to be downcast. How do we debase ourselves? Well, through this idolatrous culture. We don't have to be doing, just doing lewd things. We can just be debasing ourselves as human beings by not living up to who we are, right? Not to what the Lord is asking us to be by acquiring, acquiring His divine attributes. But Jehovah of hosts will be exalted by a just judgment. The holy God show Himself holy by His righteousness, as I mentioned before. By doing the things that He does, He shows that He is holy and He shows what it means for Him to be exalted, to lift others to His degree of holiness and to His degree of exaltation, if they would. 
Then shall his sheep feed in their pasture, and proselytes eat in the ruins of the affluent. At the very time that the evil is happening to the wicked, the covenant curses, he looks out for his sheep. At that very time, because they have had to deal with the evil, rise above it, and now he rewards them for it. Eat in the ruins of the affluent, because the affluent were the worldly people who thought they were in a good situation. They had their reward, right? Jesus said in the New Testament of the wealthy, of the rich man and Lazarus, for example. Remember that? The rich man had everything, so he ended up in hell. And Lazarus ended up, Lazarus had nothing, he had sores, and he asked for crumbs from the rich man's table. He ended up in Abraham's bosom. So the rich man had his reward on the earth. So didn't he realize that? Don't the wealthy people of today who live like that rich man, of which there are many, realize their situation? That they could end up there while the poor pass by in the street and they don't notice them? I mean, these are all scriptures. In that day, those who survive of Israel and escape of the house of Jacob will no longer rely on him who struck them when he was meeting out justice to them, but will truly rely on Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel. While at least some of them get their act together and through the afflictions that they, the punishments that they then suffer, become purified and sanctified. Even as latecomers, so to speak. Isaiah 54. Be not fearful, for you shall not be confounded. Be not ashamed, for you shall not be disgraced. You shall forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Who is he talking to? Us today? No. He's talking to the other wife, the wife who was rejected in youth, who are the house of Israel. And Isaiah draws a distinction between the current wife who are, whom we are, as the covenant people of today, who is divorced, she chooses to disqualify herself for marriage to the Lord, and so he rejects her and receives back his previous wife, who are the Jews, the ten tribes, and the Lamanites. So again, do we realize that he's talking about us when he says that we're getting divorced soon, and that he's going to accept them in our place? Do we realize that? For he who espouses you is your maker, whose name is Jehovah of hosts. He who redeems you is the Holy One of Israel, is called the God of all the earth. The Holy One of Israel now turns his attention to her and comforts her. Well, let's take a break there, and we'll come back in about five minutes. Deliverance of God's Holy Ones. Isaiah 13. An oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw in vision. Well, when you read the rest, the rest of this chapter, you see it's basically the destruction of the world, the wicked, and so forth, as we read previously. But, or and the king of Assyria, who's here identified as an ensign also, as the servant is an ensign, and a voice, as the servant is a voice, and the hand of the Lord, as the servant is also the hand of the Lord, on the left hand and the right, he is raised up by the Lord, raised the ensign on a barren mountain, sound the voice among them, or in this nation or mountain, beckon them with the hand to advance into the precincts of the elite, which we read before, meaning the elect people of today, or the elite people of today, among whom we are in this country. 
There's no country more elite than America, one would say. I've charged my holy ones, however, and call out my value ones, for my anger is not upon those who take pride in me. And now, there are footnotes in my translation that are not in this version that are presented here, but they're in my books. And there's a haplography in the Masoretic text that makes the last line pretty, a little unclear in the King James Version. But the point here is that it is those holy ones who emulate him as he is holy and valiant ones as he's valiant. He's also called the valiant one of Israel who are like him or emulating him who are going to escape the destruction that chapter 13 of Isaiah graphically portrays. For Jehovah will drive men away and great shall be the exodus from the centers of the land from Isaiah 6 and while yet a tenth of the people remain in it or return they shall be burned. But like the turbans or the oak when it is felled, whose stump remains alive, so shall the holy offspring be what is left standing. Now this harks back to the Israelites giving a tenth of their increase to the Levites, the priestly tribe, and the priestly tribe giving a tenth of that same increase that they received from the Israelites to the family of Aaron. And it was called the tenth of Jehovah, or the holy tenth, the holy tithe. And so here we have the idea that that which is holy will be what is left standing when everything else around it is destroyed. And they being of the tree that is basically an olive tree or some tree that can renew itself, uh, they will grow into a new tree that bears good fruit, as we see in other parts of Isaiah, such as in chapter 11, verse 1. So basically, the celestial people are the tenth of the tenth. The terrestrial will be the tenth, and the 90% would be the telestial people who are going to be destroyed in the earth. Isaiah 4. And at the end of Isaiah 3, we see that destruction of people being felled by the sword, as well as we see it in chapter 13, of course. In that day, the plant of Jehovah shall be beautiful and glorious, and the earth's fruit the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. While the plant is of the Jehovah is the planting of Jehovah, it can be a metaphor for a messianic person, but based on the principle of the one and the many, he also represents those who are like him. As we see here, the earth's fruit, which is not singular but plural, the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. So these are so-called the first fruits of the earth. And they come into being at the time the servant performs his mission. So he could be the plant of the Lord, and so could they be his planting, the planting of the Lord. So those, they come to fruition when the servant performs his mission. And of course, also, in a bigger sense, it applies to Christ, Messiah, who comes in glory to reign upon the earth that the link between him and his sermon is very close all the way through the book of Isaiah. And the one is not the other, as we saw in 3 Nephi, where Jehovah, or Jesus, speaking as Jehovah, talks about his servant as a third person, besides him and his father, the father. Then shall they who are left in Zion and they who remain in Jerusalem be called holy. So these are the elect of God, all who were inscribed to be among the living at Jerusalem. Inscribed where? In the Book of Life, of course. Because it is the elect who are inscribed in the Book of Life. 
And the words left and remain identifies that category of God's people who remain upon the earth, who include terrestrials as well. But it is these holy ones who are protected directly by the Lord, whereas the terrestrial category is protected indirectly, as we previously mentioned. This shall be when my Lord has washed away the excrement of the women of Zion, and the excrement in, previous, in the previous chapter is likened to all the accretions of the women that, that come from their culture that they're immersed in, all their adornments. They're mentioned ad nauseum. I think about 30 or 40 of these things are mentioned that the women seek to make themselves beautiful and cleanse Jerusalem of its bloodshed, which is the sin of the men, the injustices of the men, in the spirit of justice by a burning wind. So at the very time that there is this cleansing of the earth, there is also this deliverance of the elect, the holy ones. Over the whole side of Mount Zion and over its solemn assembly, it's called the holy mountain, as you will see in subsequent verses I'm quoting, Jehovah will form a cloud by day and a mist glowing with fire by night. Above all that is glorious shall be a canopy. It shall be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day. That is, the day of judgment, the great and dreadful day, as Malachi would say. A secret refuge from the downpour and from rain. So it is a secret. They're hidden. They're hidden from the rest of the world so that one cannot pass to the other. As we saw with the cloud of glory, anciently, would keep the Egyptians away from the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And it mentions this one cloud here, but there could be many clouds. And other scriptures would attest to that. Isaiah 35, there shall be highways and roads, that is the road of return from exile, from dispersion around the world to Zion, which shall be called the way of holiness, for they shall be for such, that is, such as are holy. It is the holy or elect who come in an exodus, led by the 144,000, who are as the angels of God, who are translated beings, who come out of the church, who are, do not, who are not cut off from the church, as, as nearly everybody else will be, who rise above the evil and take seriously their mission, their end-time mission, as saviors of the house of Israel, as Joseph was a savior of the house of, of the other tribes, his brothers, in this case, symbolizing the 144,000 mission of saviors to the other tribes of Israel when Egypt was suffering from the seven-year curse. The unclean shall not traverse them. On them shall no reprobates wander. And we see the reprobates wandering everywhere today. And should we help them? Just because they're reprobates, should we not help them? Yes, we should help them, of course, where we can and try to bring them back to an uncursed state, because they are under a covenant curse at the present. If they are just wandering the earth full and have no home. No lions shall be encountered there, nor shall wild beasts intrude, not where they are. And if, if they do, then the Lord will protect them there. But the redeemed shall walk them, the ransom of the Lord shall return, they shall come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Now the words redeemed and ransom have two meanings in Isaiah. Here they're in a synonymous parallel, but they're not entirely synonymous because the word redeem 
applies more in a spiritual sense, as it is Jehovah that redeems his people spiritually, and it is his servant that ransoms them physically in the end time from the coming destructions. They shall come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy, while everybody else is in mourning and going through hell. They shall have one joy and gladness when sorrow and sighing flee away. Like Lazarus in the parable of the rich man Lazarus, he won joy and gladness, and his sorrow and sighing fled away. So he went through it, and then through his descent phase, and now is enjoying his ascent phase, and so may we. 62. Pass on, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Well, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord in glory to rule on the earth. How? By preparing the people, of course, by bringing them up to a holy or elect level. Excavate, pave a highway cleared of stones, because now all these stones are littering the, the highway. All these precepts of men have to be dealt with and shown for what they are, untruths of God, popular ideas, as I mentioned before, that have no scriptural basis. They have to be cleared up. The truths have to be recognized for what they are and, and accepted so that they can be applied through that. As they are applied, people can become holy, as Jesus said in the beginning there in the first scripture we read. Sanctify them by thy truth, by thy truths. Raise the ensign to the nations, that is the servant's mission and the mission of the 144,000. He, personifying the, the good ensign that rallies the elect to Zion and the king of Assyria, personifying the evil ensign that raises an alliance of nations against God's elect. Jehovah has made proclamation to the end of the earth, tell the daughter of Zion, see your salvation comes. His reward with him is work preceding him. His work of preparation has to precede him. We saw a little bit of that in the New Testament where John the Baptist prepared the way for the first coming of Christ. So that some could be exercising faith in his coming so that then he could come. We see that more in Enoch's Zion where Enoch established a Zion people from a wicked people to whom the Lord could then come because they had become a Zion people and so he could come to them. His reward with him when he comes, because the reward for the, for the righteous is the joy and consolation, and the reward for the wicked is, is meeting out of justice or covenant curses. And both of these come simultaneously when at the time of his coming. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of Jehovah, and you shall be known as in demand a city never deserted. So what Spencer sees and hopes for and almost realizes, realizes that it's almost impossible, how is he going to attain that, actually does happen. Not just with him, but with an entire people. Who are they? Well, they are the wife, of course, that he remarries, the house of Israel. Because Zion, when you look at it, all through the scriptures, is established among the house of Israel. It's not established among us, but we help them establish it. If we fulfill our missions as saviors to the house of Israel, and if not, we will be assaulted as lots of savior. All these scriptures are so integrated with one another, you can't separate them. You cannot just take one scripture and run with it. They're all interconnected all through, from the beginning to the very end of them.
Isaiah 12. In that day you will say, Give thanks to Jehovah, invoke his name, make known his deeds among the nations. Because there are still nations out there that haven't heard of his glory, as Isaiah says in chapter 66. Commemorate his exalted name. Because when you reach that point, what else would you be doing but praising him? Because all that you've accomplished, he has done for you, as it says in one scripture in Isaiah. All that thou hast accomplished, you have done for us. Sing in praise of Jehovah who has performed wonders. The great and marvelous work is a wonder. The great and marvelous work, by definition, is the restoration of the house of Israel. Let it be acknowledged throughout the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for renowned among you is the Holy One of Israel. Because you are holy now, so he could abide with you. So there will be great rejoicing in that millennial age. Being received into God's presence, visions of glory. Our whole society was engaged in expanding Zion, which meant that the lands around us had to be prepared to become Zion. As time advanced, word spread around the Americas and then around the world that in Zion there was peace, safety, and food. And if you did not wish to be at war, that you had to pay whatever price it took to go to Zion or to cities. Well, the prophet Joseph said that and predicted that, that all nations would be at war with one another, but if you did not wish to be involved in the wars, you'd have to flee to Zion and her stakes, or to her stakes, or to the old Jerusalem, to the new Jerusalem, or to the old Jerusalem. That is how he put it. Because you have a parallel scenario going on in the old Jerusalem among the Jews. We no longer call this place Missouri. It was becoming known worldwide as Zion, the New Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Well, who talks today about going back to Missouri? I mean, they used to, but is that still politically correct? I mean, well, where, do you, where else do you think the New Jerusalem is going to be built? So, let's try to get acquainted with that part of our prophecies. It was becoming known as Worldwide is Zion, the new Jerusalem, the city of the living God. The God who lived there, the God who came to to live there. As a result, every people, every day, people arrived at the gates of Zion. We could not admit them until they were prepared. In fact, they were not able to enter because of the pillars of fire guarding Zion, like they did the tree of life. And if you were elect, then yes, you could, you could take of the fruit of the tree of life and eat it and live forever because your sins were long gone. Not only were you purified of them, but also of your iniquities. Our Savior visited us in the temple in Zion, and resurrected and translated beings walked the streets of Zion. Notice how all of these scriptures, the more you get into the scriptures, the more this book, Visions of Glory, is so harmonious with all of them. I mean, it gives us nuanced insights. It, it's almost like it fills in little blanks here and there between all these scriptures, because between all these interconnecting scriptures. And, and this, is a, this is a great gift that we have been given. Notables of the past, of past generations were seen every day, and only the very pure could be there without being consumed by the pillars of fire. At this time, Jesus Christ was not seen outside of the temple. After the second coming, that is in glory, to all the earth, our Savior actually lived in the New Jerusalem, lived in the New Jerusalem. It's not an uncommon sight within the city. He would visit homes and families and bless them with his presence, love, and glory. 
As that day approached, the worthiness requirements to dwell there became much more celestial. We all knew this, and we accepted the standard of worthiness presently enforced as a minimum requirement. So even while building Zion, they're still living under a minimum degree of sanctity. We also embraced the changes that were coming about in our collective holiness. There you have it, the collective holiness that would ultimately enable the Christ to walk our streets, which we lovingly paved with gold so that they would be appropriate places for his holy feet. Well, how did he become so holy? Well, look at his life and all the things he did. And again, we don't know the entire backstory of this, but you know that to attain that state and to become as he is, we need to go through all the things that he went through. And he did only those things that he saw the Father go through. And so it goes. Moses 6. Teach it to your children that all men everywhere must repent. And that is keep repenting. Keep repenting until you see the Lord face to face. Because there's always something to repent of. Until then. Right? And even then you must keep repenting because even translated beings can fall. As you know one famous or infamous one must repent or they can no wise inherit the kingdom of God. For no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in his presence. For in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name. And the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge, who shall come in the meridian of time. Son of Man, man of holiness. Isaiah 57. They who seek refuge in thee shall possess the earth, and receive an inheritance in my holy mountain. And what is that holy mountain? Well, it is Mount Zion, or wherever Zion is established. It will be said, excavate, pave a road, prepare the way, remove the obstacles from the path of my people, or those stones. But actually, stones also uh, is a metaphor for celestial people. You cannot have celestial people in Zion. You have precious stones, semi-precious, and common stones and metals signifying three different spiritual categories, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. So they have to, they have to go. In fact, that's what, that's what the end of the world is. It's the destruction of the wicked. And who are the wicked? Telestial levels and below. But we said excavate, pave a road, prepare the way, etc. Thus says he who is highly exalted, who abides forever, whose name is sacred, because that's what highly exalted people do. They abide forever. Saints too, whose name is sacred or holy. I dwell on high in the holy place and with him who is humble and lowly in spirit. Because one who is proud is not holy, right? He's unholy. Refreshing the spirits of the lowly, reviving the hearts of the humble. So you may be humbled against your will or you may be humbled voluntarily. It doesn't matter. If you are humbled, Except that state, you can grow in, in holiness, and he'll dwell with you. I wonder how many people actually take some of those things literally. I will come and sup with you. I will make my abode with you. The Father and I will come, and I will refresh you. He regenerates us spiritually and physically too. We'll be renewed in the flesh. I mean, perfect faith in Jesus Christ. Do we believe that, or just is there a little pocket of unbelief there somewhere? in our hearts and says, oh no, that couldn't happen to me. If it's his word, would he do it? 
course. Doctrine and Covenants 88. If your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light. Or you might say light and truth, because the one is like unto the other. And there shall be no darkness in you or untruth. That body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things, that is, all, all things true and false. Therefore sanctify yourself that your mind become single to God, not unsingle or deviating to these other things that are not true, that are not light. And the days will come that you shall see him. You shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you and shall be in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will. His will, not ours. We can't conjure this up because we follow some kind of, you know, easy formula or something. It doesn't work that way. We cannot do it because we want it so bad. We cannot do it that way. We can't manipulate it. It comes from him in his own time, in his own way, according to his own will, in ways that are most least expected when they happen. And it can happen to each one of us. And he says it right here. And it does. Isaiah 11. Then shall the wolf dwell among lambs, and the leopard lie down with young goats. Calves and lions will feed together, and a youngster will lead them to pasture. Well, that's also an allusion to the house of Israel and Gentiles, the clean animals and the unclean in the millennial age, the youngster being the servant who leads them to pasture like a shepherd. He pastures his flock, chapter 40 of Isaiah. The servant is such a, <clears throat> such a shepherd, and so is the Lord, of, co of course. When a cow and bear browse, their young will rest together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. Well, maybe not that dry straw, but I'm not sure, sure there's much food value in it, but in those days there might be, however. A suckling infant will play near the adder's den, and the toddler reaches hand over the viper's nest, which are poisonous animals. There shall be no harm or injury done throughout my holy mountain. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of Jehovah, as the oceans are overspread with waters. Not just knowledge about Jehovah, but pure knowledge of Jehovah, of what he is, of the truth of Jehovah, all he stands for, of his entire plan of salvation, of things beyond that we can see now. Isaiah 52. This is resurrection imagery. And who is resurrecting here? Awake and arise. Awake, arise, clothe yourself with power, O Zion, put on your robes of glory, O Jerusalem, holy city. So they attain holiness. At some point, Zion or Jerusalem, that category attains holiness through the ministration of the Lord's servant and his fellow 144,000 servants. No more shall the uncircumcised and defiled enter you because they did before. It's likening to a woman who has these evil, uncircumcised consorts. Shake yourself free, rise from the dust, from being a non-entity, from look, being looked down upon, from being a peripheral category of people, from being persecuted, literally and indirectly. Sit enthroned over Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bands around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That was, she was under a covenant curse and incurred these things for her previous her ancient unfaithfulness, and now she's received back. O captive daughter of Zion, thus says Jehovah, you were sold without price, and you shall be redeemed without money. 
the selling without price comes because others take them captive who have more power than she does, than they do. Let me see that, how Hitler dealt with the Jews in World War II, for example. He turned them into dust, in fact, into ashes, which is also a covenant curse. But they're going to resurrect, and they're going to live through the millennial age as Zion people of the Lord. And in our day and age, they're also, we are also being sold down the river by those who are seeking to take us over, the secret combinations of our day, which are now in, in force and which will continue to be, as you'll see, as events unfold to where we're completely in bondage. That's why we have scriptures like DNC 113, 15 through, 103, 15 through 20, um, we'll be led out of bondage by one luck into Moses, back to Jackson County, Missouri. Isaiah 52. Hark your watchmen. Your watchmen are the 144,000, or equivalent in the book of Isaiah. They're also called servants of God. We've read scriptures about them. We had a whole lesson on them. Hark your watchmen lift up their voice. That is, they're shouting it to the world as they go on their missions but also they're sustaining the Lord's voice, which is the servant, because to lift up and sustain is the same word in Hebrew. And voice is a metaphor for the servant. He personifies the Lord's voice. He is the Lord's voice to the people, to his people in that day. So these are different levels of interpretation that are all valid. As one they cry out for joy, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord returns to Zion. I do I because they've had the same apocalyptic vision that all translated beings do, like the three Nephites and many others. Jehovah has bared his holy arm, revealed him, or also revealed righteousness in Isaiah, and the holy arm being the servant and the word righteousness personifying the servant. So does the word arm. In the eyes of all nations. So this is a universal event. The whole world would know about it from the get-go, from the outset. It's not the restoration of the gospel through the Prophet Joseph Smith, which was not a worldwide event from the, from the, from the get-go. That all the ends of the earth may see our God's salvation, because he's coming now. Our God's salvation is our God's Jehovah, because the, word, the name of Christ itself is salvation, and Christ personifies it, and Christ is Jehovah. 56. And the foreigners who adhere to Jehovah, to serve him, who love the name of Jehovah, that they may be his servants. So to serve him and to honor his name is that all that he represents to you, you are living in your life. You are taking upon, your name, upon yourself the name of Christ to the degree that you are, as it were, of his, the fellowship of Christ that Spencer sees that they may be his servants. That is, the 144,000 servants, equivalent in the book of Revelation. Who, all who keep the Sabbath without profaning it, as so many do today. Well, just in my word, last week, last Sunday, there were many who didn't come because of the rugby playoffs. Since it's a Polynesian word, they love rugby. And then this, you know, Super Bowl Sunday and just any old Sunday will do to watch any old thing. So that's one way you can find the Sabbath and many, many others. Holding fast to my covenant, 
Well, in the book of Isaiah, the servant personifies the covenant. The Lord calls him and appoints him as his covenant in chapters 42 and 49. So holding fast to the Lord's covenant is both literal and figurative. Holding, holding fast and sustaining the Lord's servant. And also holding fast to the higher covenant of the fullness of the gospel and living it in all its fullness, which involves being proxy saviors to the house of Islam. And these are foreigners or Gentiles. So where do the 144,000 come from? Out of us, the Ephraimites. As we have discussed before, the 144,000 are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes by appointment, as were the 12 apostles of Jesus' day, judges over the house of Israel by appointment. These will I bring to my holy mountain and gladden in my house of prayer, that is after the pain is all over, their offerings and sacrifices, why? Because they're proxy saviors of the house of Israel. That is how the house of Israel becomes a Zion people. There's no other way. They're not going to do it on their own. The Jews are not going to do it. The ten tribes, nor Lamanites, without us fulfilling our missions to them as saviors on Mount Zion, as high priests after the holy order of God, as translated beings. All the things as watchmen, as all these things that the scriptures say about us. To be saviors as Joseph was of his brothers in Egypt. Their offerings and sacrifices shall be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be known as house of prayer for all nations, us included, and them. So nobody needs to say that Allah will cut us off from his people, as these foreigners will want to say in that chapter, chapter 56. And notice in chapter 56 that those Gentiles who say that, those foreigners who are saying that, who are covenant keepers, and who are sustaining the Lord's servant, are juxtaposed with those who are currently the Lord's servants, who are currently the leaders. And they are consumed by the ravenous beasts, while these others are exalted in the house of our God. Chapter 56 in Isaiah is a powerful chapter. So this now is addressing people of God's covenant people of today. It's us. If you will keep your feet from trampling the Sabbath, from achieving your own ends on my holy day. So how can we be holy if we despise this holy day of the Lord? In Israel, they keep the Sabbath day holy. The, the religious Jews do. And even the secular Jews. As we drove on a Sunday, you pass through anywhere there's religious Jews and they'll look at you They'll give you the eye in a kind way, but kind of a reprimanding way, saying, aren't you violating the Sabbath, my brother or my sister, kind of thing? It's really interesting, because we kept the Sabbath when it suited us, almost. But we did travel. We kept it holy, but we traveled in a car to the meeting. And consider the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of, of Jehovah, venerable. And if you will honor it by refraining from your everyday pursuits, from occupying yourselves with your own affairs, speaking of business matters or the latest game on Sunday at church, whatever, I mean, how common is that? You just think, these people just don't get it. I mean, what are you supposed to be thinking of? If that's, what's go if that's what they're verbally thinking of, what's going on in their minds besides that, you know? Then shall you delight in Jehovah, and I will make you traverse the heights of the earth. Not otherwise. 
and nourish you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, because then you'll be worthy of the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what was that? Posterity as numerous as the sands of the sea, the multitude of the stars in heaven, exaltations upon exaltations. By his mouth, Jehovah has spoken it. He can't retract from it. He can't give you that that they have attained if you don't do these things. You're kidding yourself. Isaiah 60. The splendor of Lebanon shall become yours, cypresses, pines, and firs together, to beautify the site of my sanctuary, to make glorious the place of my feet. Where is that? Well, in Zion, of course, and in all her stakes. The sons of those who tormented you, because they not all of them will be killed, will come bowing before you. Some of them will become converts to you. And Spencer sees that in his book, Visions of Glory, that those who were soldiers who came in as invaders of this land turned, and they saw the goodness of the people here, some of the people here. They turned and they were smitten with remorse, and they inquired and accepted the gospel. And many of them went through the same journey of sanctification and became members of Zion. The sons of those who tormented you will come bowing before you all who reviled you will prostrate themselves at your feet. They will call you the city of Jehovah, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. 65. The wolf and the lamb will graze alike, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but as for the serpent, dust shall be its food. There shall be no harm or injury done throughout my holy mountain, says Jehovah. And that's the end. And we have just enough time to show you a couple of websites, newly put up. Okay, so this is the uh, Isaiah Institute, the new Isaiah Institute website. It has many different parts to it. Um, it also has that video that we showed you the, two weeks ago. It's also advertising this lecture currently. The other side is Isaiah Explained, the new Isaiah Explained. Many of you have, are familiar with the old Isaiah Explained which was Dewey Olson's site that Rhonda, Rhonda Pickering started several, many years ago now. And this site is uh, an upgraded version of it. To go, for example, to these four main categories, the Isaiah translation, we can go to any chapter and scroll down. If you come across a keyword such as these, you'll see there where the Lord appoints the servant be a covenant of the people, as we just saw. And you click on it and it says, a pseudonym of Jehovah's end time servant who personifies Jehovah's covenant, who acts as its mediator, as did Moses, and who administers its ordinances to Jehovah's elect. You can also go to these, you can also go to this audio commentary and listen to the audio that's on the um, MP3 that we've been selling. It's a 30 hour altogether. It'll take you to each of the chapters. It starts you there at the same chapter. Whenever you go to something else in this website, it always stays on the same chapter and verse that you're on. You can go to resources and see these um, six different categories that are also in my book, The Windows and the Prophecy of Isaiah, that we have for sale as a book. Then here is the vignette that we just saw two weeks ago. You can click on. You can register for the newsletter, which is, hasn't started yet, but it will shortly. You can donate, because we need 
many donations to make these things possible. And you can buy these books that are listed here or the MP3. If you go, for example, to the comparative translation, you have all the different, you have, I mean, you have the, uh, here on the same chapter, you see, chapter 42, the King James Version, the New Translation, and the Hebrew. You can go to the Apocalyptic Commentary, and there you have same chapter, 42, it takes you right across. All these same things on the right hand in the sidebar, but there you have the Apocalyptic Commentary, as we have in the book, the Apocalyptic Commentary, that's for sale, with the chapter heading, the first verse, the commentary on it, with all the word links that it quotes. He takes you to Isaiah 11.2 that it quotes there, which we just did. There's Isaiah 11.2 for my translation. You can go to another reference in the Bible, like Exodus 3.16.32, click on it, and it takes you to Exodus 16.30, you know, that reference through 32. Sorry, I'm kind of slow, but you can just scroll through and go through the entire apocalyptic commentary or click on a word for its definition if you need to. Then the interactive concordance, you can click on any word except prepositions. You can say, my servant, click on it. And it takes you to all the instances of the Lord's servant in the book of Isaiah. You can click on a reference in chapter um, 49, for example, verse 3, and it takes you to chapter 49, verse 3, where chapter 49 is talking about the servant. And these, this is totally interactive, as you can see, between the translation and the concordance. So you can go back home. Uh, let's see, where's home? And you can scroll down and see at the bottom we have testimonials by people. And you'll soon be able to add your own testimonial to it if you want, which I would welcome because the more people know about it, the better. These resources are these same six categories you have down here on the sidebar. You can go directly to the King James Bible and look up anything there. There's the Bible, all its books, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Click on any chapter, it'll take you there. You can go to the store and buy some of the Isaiah books that we have for sale at the back of the room. Or you can contact us and become a member of the site. So anyway, there you have it. Yeah, we have five minutes for a question and answer. You wanna, we can leave this, I guess. Okay, you were first. Yeah, I, I do say Jehovah instead of the Lord. The King James uses the Lord, but that's not, the, that's not a true translation. In the Hebrew it says Jehovah. Unless it says, my Lord, Adonai, then I say, my Lord. Capital L of Lord, but my Lord. So the Lord of hosts is really Jehovah of hosts. That's his name, not the Lord of hosts. And, but the reason that other translations translated the Lord, not Jehovah, is because of the deference to the name of Jehovah. And they have the idea that it should be used sparingly. But really, the name says it all, and I prefer the Jehovah, and I, you know, I differ from others translators that way, but it, it uses Jehovah elsewhere, and, and why shouldn't we call him what it really says it is? When people spoke his, you know, in the scriptures themselves, they were speaking like in, in um, dialogue, they were saying Jehovah, they weren't saying 
the Lord. And it basically comes from the Jews who, who, they don't even say Adonai, which is the Lord, in place of Jehovah. They say Hashem, which simply means the name. So they want to say, instead of Jehovah, they say the name. The name? The name said this and the name said that? Um, I don't think so. It's Jehovah, your God. The King James will capitalize it, Lord, the word Lord. But there are no capital letters in Hebrew anyway, so go figure that one. So yeah, but the name Jehovah is, is derived from the verb to be, meaning that he, he was, he is, and he will be. And so when the people, of, when he commissions Moses to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites, and he says to Moses, when the people ask you who sent you, just say, I am who am sent you. But that's the King James Version. But actually the Hebrew is another plan words on the verb to be. And literally it says, and it means, I will be what I will be. I mean, it's another plan words of the verb to be. So why not say what it is? Okay, you had a question. The descent and ascent, ascending pattern, yes. Mm -hmm. Of past mortalities? Or beyond mortality? Or is there a descent and ascent pattern beyond mortality? <coughs> well, I have not said, well, okay. I guess, yes, I did say, or imply that at one time. Um, it's true that Christ went through a descent pattern in mortality, but he did not attain his ascent pattern um, phase completely in mortality. His ascent phase is still coming when he comes in glory, which is part of his ascent phase. We know from Adam and Eve, about Adam and Eve, that to become an, an Adam and Eve, this is awake and arise, which is resurrection imagery, that they had gone through a previous mortal experience to attain that. So that, that too, in that they accomplished, and that's in the church archives. That's in, I mentioned um, Wilfred Woodrow's diary. It was discussed by the brethren. So we know from that, that to become an Adam and Eve, we, as we do when we attain paradise in the millennial age, that they must have gone through what we are going through if we become elect and attain paradise. So, what else would there be to your question? Is there something beyond this where we... Well, I would say that there's not another pattern for of descent and ascent beyond mortality, but it does kind of imply that if Jesus did nothing but what he saw the Father do, and he commands us to do nothing but what he, we see him do, then it implies that there is more than one mortality, maybe many more mortalities. And, um, you know, I'm not teaching that, but I'm saying <laughs> the scriptures imply it. That's what I am teaching. Yeah, I'm not saying there is, but the scriptures are implying it. So don't quote me as teaching it. Just say, well, he's teaching the scriptures. Yes, one more. Yes. Uh, the question is, as you ascend sp through spiritual levels, there are mentors or 
or guides who help you. And we discussed um, Isaiah, I mean, DNC 76 about angels ministering the Holy Spirit from the celestial through the terrestrial to the telestial. And as you go, say, to a higher level, are there people in higher levels who minister to you? Is that your question? Do you know them personally? Can you ask them questions, gain answers? Yes. Well, I think so. We can gain answers through the Holy Spirit now, but it's the angels who minister to us, unseen angels who minister to us and give those answers. And we, it is the Holy Spirit, but it's through the angels, as DNC 76 says. And that's on a telestial level. You go to a terrestrial level, and instead of having terrestrial angels minister to you as on the telestial level, you have celestial angels minister to you. So there's a change of guard. As you progress, there's a change of guard. And as Jesus says in Gethsemane, he could call on 12 legions of angels. If you ask the Father, he would send him 12 legions of angels. And so that, or, or Elijah, you know, who, who said, well, or Elisha, they could, they could summon hosts of heaven to their aid. So, yes, you can know them. Your knowledge of them increases as you ascend. To become elect, anyway, you need to have personal knowledge of Christ. And so... It, it implies that you do, doesn't it? Scriptures do. And yes, I would just say yes. You, you definitely know them. Because you cannot, and you can ask, que ask questions and get answers. I mean, Scriptures say that. And it says it somewhere else too, right? All right. One more question over here. The question is, when you see Christ, does it also imply having a vision of the end from the beginning? No. The end from the beginning is, is what translated being, translated being see, or those who have the sealing power who attain the spirit and power of Elijah, as Joseph Smith talked about, who have the priesthood after the holy order of God in all its fullness. They have that. And just the first stage or the first degree of elect status, of uh, sanctified status, in, is not for just man made perfect, does not necessarily give you a vision of the end from the beginning. You, know, you still have to go through to the next step. Yeah. And that distinguishes translated beings from the rest, really. Yeah. Like calling election, no, that's that is the first degree of this. Well, that is that is the that qualifies you as as elect of God, just man made perfect. That is calling election made sure. Yes, that is received the manifestation of Christ to the degree that you know that you're exalted, but it is not seeing Christ face to face. As far as I know. Yeah, there might be exceptions. The Lord, you know, the Lord... Um, <laughs> He knows who we are, like he did Spencer uh, from before the foundation of the world. He knew who Joseph Smith was. Why didn't Joseph Smith go through all those phases on the earth in order to see the Son of the Father? Because he'd gone through them before. And so he had the right to see the Father and the Son, both. 
not just Jehovah, not just Christ. Isaiah saw Christ in chapter 66, well, Jehovah in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, but in chapter 40, he saw the end from the beginning. He had a cosmic vision. So for the 40 or more years that he ministered, it was him progressing to that point. And then he was received into the council of the gods. So there are different manifestations, and the Lord reveals things to us individually, each according to who we are and according to our personalities and circumstances and what he, what he could see might eventuate if he revealed more than he ought to or more than was appropriate. So, yeah. It's not always exactly the same for everybody, I would say. All right, we'll end it there. And see. Next week is on the workings of evil spirits, something that very few people talk about today. It's another one of the politically incorrect things to talk about. So look forward to that. This concludes Lecture 13, The Holiness of Israel's God. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.